Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Paul Roberts and his co-founders spotted a need in the market for a device that could make keyhole surgery more widely available to patients all over the world. I visited his factory in a former farm building on the edge of Cambridge, where he now has a 50-strong team working to bring the devices to market. It all began when he was working as a consultant for a Cambridge-based research group. One of the big areas that a number of these consultancies in Cambridge get their business from is medical device development. So I did that for a number of years and got to understand the market for medical devices and particularly the market for surgical intervention devices. And what became clear is that there is a crying need for innovation in the area of surgery particularly. About 5 million people a year don't get the right treatment, by which I mean they end up having open surgery, whereas all the medical professionals say they should have keyhole surgery, they should have minimally invasive surgery. And really the reason for this is we've just not been able to train enough surgeons to a sufficient level of skill that they're confident to perform keyhole surgery procedures. If you look at soft tissue surgery, the same tools and techniques that manual keyhole surgeons who don't use a robot, they use similar tools to cover procedures from the urogynological area all the way through to general surgery and through to head and neck surgery. A lot of the tools are similar, the techniques are similar, they're different surgical specialties, but if you look at the way that the market for the instrumentation and so forth develop, they tend to target all these areas at once. So we want to be developing a system that's universal and can be used to address all these areas. Probably the key enabler was what's turned into our first patent. So you can probably just about see it from where we sit here, Jonathan. There's a picture of it up on the wall. And what that picture describes is a wrist. From a technologist's perspective, well, we already know what the gold standard is. So we need to design a system which can mimic the function of a human arm. And actually, that's exactly what we do at Cambridge Medical Robotics. Our robotic technology uses an element of biomimicry. So the wrist that we've patented works in a very similar way to yours and my wrists. As a company, we are expert systems engineers, which is a slightly dull engineering term, but let me explain what I mean by that. System engineering is the art, or maybe science, of pulling together technologies from all sorts of different disciplines, different industries, working out what technologies are best and how they work most effectively in combination. And so the wrist is a great example because we have a patent on the concept and a patent on the embodiment as well. And the technology that we use to realise it isn't normally used in medical devices. It's normally used in the aviation and military industries. 
And that really is an example of great systems engineering. Another example of that is in our electronics. We use what is effectively mobile phone technology. Fortunately for us, over the past 20 years, it's become commoditized. So relatively small companies like us have access to the same technology that's almost the same that's in your iPhone there. And what that means is that we can pack a very high density of electronics into a very small space. Because one thing the human arm does very well is it has a great power to weight ratio. So we have a lot of strength and not a lot of physical size. And that's very important for surgeons because when they're operating, it's a very physical activity. And surgeons tend to run out of space quite quickly because they love their hands to be smaller. They love their instruments to be smaller. So it's critical for us that we make our robot arms as slender as they can be. This all sounds like very intelligent sort of engineering and that must cost a lot of money to find the engineering brains to do this. So how have you funded this? Sure. It was difficult. Medical devices, you're quite right, is a capital-intensive industry. I don't think in the UK we actually have a brilliant track record of funding medical device startups. I think partly because it takes a long time till we get to revenue. We were talking earlier about where we are in our commercialisation and we're not there yet. So initially we started with an idea and started talking to potential backers. And we started talking locally. There are a number of folk that we spoke to in Cambridge, moved from Cambridge to London, moved from London to San Francisco. And it was quite hard work and took quite a lot of time. And it actually tends to cost quite a lot of money to raise money, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. the travel costs start ramping up and so forth. And we were fortunate enough that Luke, one of my co-founders, has a relationship with Sophie Hanna. Sophie, the well-known crime writer, is a real enthusiast for technology. She loves technology. She's fascinated by the city she lives in. She lives in Cambridge. And she was very pleased to give us a small amount of funding to allow us to go off and meet a number of VCs and ultimately raise rather more money. Is there a lesson there in the get to back? I think that the lesson is... I think everyone finds it hard work. We certainly talk to others who've been on a similar pathway to us. Something somebody said to me once is, always talk to the person sat next to you on the plane. And I've certainly found that to be true from my own experience. And I think I would extend that to say, always talk to the person who your wife gives music lessons to, which is how Luke knows Sophie. Because you never know. They may well be interested. So Sophie Hanna's money was really what got you kick-started? It was a, a very useful, but ultimately modest amount. But what that money allowed us to do was to really work hard at accessing the VCs in the locations where there is substantial money. So typically medical device startups are funded in really one of two places, either the East Coast or the West Coast of the US. And so there's a JP Morgan event in San Francisco around about Christmas, New Year time. We went there, um, met a number of people there. That led to some contacts in New York. We went out to Munich at one point, talking to funders. We talked to folk in Paris. That process took a a lot of time and, as you would expect, a fair amount of resource to do. And I'm sorry to say, actually, while there was a lot of interest, it was a difficult thing to back. And, you know, I can understand that. A number of folk, essentially with nothing but a PowerPoint slide and a reasonable track record, is a difficult sell to build a 50-person business from. In all honesty, there were times when we were thinking, this isn't going to happen. What was it then that changed? Well, I think at one level it was serendipity. At another level, I think you make your own luck. If we hadn't done all that traipsing around the globe then maybe this would never have happened. So some of the feedback we received from those investors when we were talking was, 
okay, we like the concept, we completely believe the market, we can see where you're going, but how do you know you've got freedom to operate? How do you know that your IP is going to be clean? And how do you know it's actually patentable? And those are actually good questions. And where that led us to was realising we really need to get on and patent some of our core pieces of IP. And so obviously we need some patent attorneys. So we used Slingsby and Partners. Philip Slingsby at the time was setting himself up. He had previously worked for another firm. And then Philip rung us out of the blue and said, one of my other clients has just been asking if I know any companies that are looking for investment. Would you like me to put them in touch with you? And of course we said yes. And that particular person was Pear Methy, who's on our board. And Pear loved what he saw. He believed in what we were about. And he and his business partner, Egor Kulkov, were very pleased to invest. So we obviously met them a number of times. We worked out a framework. And we are delighted that he was able to believe in the vision that we put in front of him. In fact, that was, I think, what led Pear to be dealing with Slingsby Partners because he was sorting out an IP portfolio in one of his other investments and was looking to expand that and was very interested in getting into medical devices. He could see the merit of medical devices and that the market was absolutely ready for innovation in that area. What about people? These are intelligent people you've got working here. They must cost a lot of money and be quite a rarity. What we actually found was very pleasing. We found that actually the draw of, I suspect, robotics and the draw of robotics designed to do good in the world actually really helped with recruitment. So a number of people have mentioned that actually that, perhaps beyond anything else, made them convinced that Cambridge Medical Robotics was the right thing for them. If the vision wasn't consistent with the way the company was set up, I think you know that might have been a problem. But I think that whole message is very attractive to employees and, and makes a big difference. In fact, we had at one point a roll door on the entrance to our building where we now have a lovely window. One recruit literally walked through the door. He said, hello, I've heard about Cambridge Medical Robotics and I've heard you might have jobs and he's one of our key employees now. And it is literally on the door, robotics, so people know what you're up to, and there's that draw. Quite so. I think having a company name that's straightforward and explains what you do has actually served us very well. What's the next big thing for you? It is our absolute ambition to be a medical device manufacturer. So we are moving towards setting up all the infrastructure for that here in Cambridge, in the UK, and To do that, to be a company that manufactures and sells hardware, requires more funding, more people, and that is exactly what we're we're going to be doing. I have a couple of worries around Brexit. Personally, I think we would have been much better off staying in the EU, and there's a couple of reasons. The first is building a manufacturing business, I think fundamentally is what the UK needs. I think we are a little over-reliant on financial services, and that as Other advanced economies, Switzerland, Germany, have managed to build a high-tech manufacturing industry and the UK is absolutely capable of doing that. But to do that requires a lot of capital to get going. And that was certainly our experience. And Per Methian Escala Capital are Norwegian and we are greatly indebted to them for funding us. We would love it if there was more capital available for building manufacturing businesses. And my worry is that actually there isn't the scale of economy to support the level of capital investment that is required to build manufacturing businesses in the UK. And that over the course of the next decade and maybe more, it will be increasingly difficult for companies like Cambridge Medical Robotics to get off the ground. But Stelios Cavadius, 
of Cambridge's Judge Business School is more optimistic about the prospects for high-tech manufacturers in places like Cambridge. When somebody starts thinking about 3D printing or they specialising engineering technologies, when you start looking at manufacturing from that standpoint, where scale is a relative term, we're talking about smaller sizes, but very high-end technology behind them, then we could see that producing here could actually save us on the logistics part. And once the, the technologies like 3D printing enable the production cost to go even lower, the local knowledge that we have would all of a sudden start becoming the factor to drive the expansion of manufacturing. So I think we could see a little bit of a shift back. Now, when you get into things like Cambridge Medical Robotics or companies where really the value added is on the engineering refined technologies that they use, I think having a little bit of a hands on the actual production becomes imperative because the quality of the outcome is really important. So we might want to be manufacturers because manufacturing becomes, due to the complexity perhaps of the product that we're looking at, a very important competitive asset that we need to own. A good example for this is the automotive manufacturers, right? They have outsourced a lot when you look at the history of the automotive industry, but still there is a large chunk of assembly and production that is in-house simply because that's such a complex item that you can't risk faulting at any one of the uh, individual parts and how you bring them together. You've been involved in a lot of research on how to scale up businesses. What is the biggest barrier here? Is it funding? Is it people or management? The problem is complex because there is capable companies out there that could scale up. And there is money that could help them scale up, but it's very hard to recognize who the capable guys are. Why aren't they recognizable? Part of it is because the financial mechanisms have not developed the capability to look at small and medium-sized enterprises in different ways than the, the large companies. But that's not such a big issue in my mind. The big issue in my mind is that small and medium-sized companies have not really gotten enough support in developing themselves from a management skill set standpoint so that they can tell the world how great they are and they can actually really deliver on strategies that they develop themselves. I'm presuming you would say one of the ways is to go to a business school like Cambridge Judge, but (laughs) what other ways are there to get those skills? I think in general, it's not only the business schools that could do this, right? But we could envision gatherings or, or societies of enterprises developing programs for themselves, where even the simple mentoring from the people who have done it to the people who want to do it would be enough of a push to create such a way forward. I do believe that everything stops at the fact that small and medium-sized enterprises being inundated in the firefighting and the survival do not often recognize the need to set aside some resources, and I'm talking not necessarily about monetary resources, but time resources, to really take a step back and think about the bigger picture. And again, who can offer this? Obviously, I would say the business schools, but I think even the societies of enterprises themselves can do that. Smaller consulting companies can do that. The government, if they set up mechanisms like this, could do this. We can can envision multiple players. Paul Roberts believes that another factor also helped win the confidence of investors in his company. I've always been a big believer in investing in your team. They sort of teach you that in middle management. They say that's the right thing to do. But I find myself passionately believing that to be true. And I think perhaps more than any other thing, the feedback that we've had from investors has been this is a very professionally run startup. I think what they're referring to is that we retain 
the energy and excitement of the sort of stereotypical startup. But at the same time, we have structures in place to care well for people, to give them an exciting experience and a motivating experience. So my tip would be work hard on making your team be as effective as you can by caring for them well. Next week, we look at a startup that found a way to operate in 87 countries without the need for any staff outside its headquarters in London. So listen then to hear the story of market research company Street Fees. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.